0: Well, we are celebrating the second Sunday of Advent. Advent means coming. Last Sunday, our first Advent sermon was preached by Reverend Chung. His text came from the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Today, we will look at the first promise of Christmas. And so let's turn to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. We're going to read verses 1 through 21 to help us with the proper context, but our focus is going to be on verse 15, which is where we find the first promise of Christmas. Now, maybe you're thinking Christmas is found on page 2 of the Bible. How can that be? I'm glad you asked. Let's find out. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man said, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. To return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades but the Word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know His will, if we want to know His way, then we must know His Word. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for this Word to us. Um, Hard to hear, but also so refreshing. Thank You for this first promise of Christmas. All the way back at that first sin, it brings us hope this morning as well as happiness. Unveil that to our hearts, we pray. Amen. Are you familiar with the saying, under promise, over deliver? Publicly traded companies will do this. They will say, yeah, we had a good quarter this quarter, but next quarter, boy, it's not going to be all that great. And the stock goes down. And then guess what? What What a surprise. When they announced their, their earnings, they went through the roof. That is, um, under-promise, over-deliver. We do this at work as well. Under-promise and over-deliver. We say, uh, boss will come to you and say, hey, employee, how long will it take you for for you to get me that mumbo-jumbo report? And you say, well, bossy boss, it'll it'll take at least a week. And then you drop it, boom, four days. You say, there you go. Under-promise, over-deliver. You might not think it's a bad thing, but if you're an investor, it can mean financial loss. The issue here is one of transparency. Over time, you come to distrust, some, distrust someone who under-promises and over-delivers. But then there's the opposite. The I think I got it wrong at the beginning, the over-promise, under-deliver. My father was a charter member of the Over-Promise, Under-Deliver Society of America. All right, I'm making that up. I love my dad. I love Pops. Uh, I miss him uh, every day uh, since he's been gone. But he was he was pretty good at making promises and not delivering. We would go to these outdoor conventions every year as they came through town and fishing shows and things like that. And we would always go by these booths from these people from Canada. And my dad would promise me, he would say, you know, Mark, one of these days we're going to go to Canada. And we're going to camp and fish. It's going to be so much fun. I go, yeah, Pops, that's awesome. We never went to Canada. Then there was the go-kart. He came home with this go-kart that he must have traded half a pickup load of manure for. Because it didn't work from day one. We found out that the brakes didn't work after Pop's test drove it and ran into some neighbor kid and made him cry. He took the engine out to get it fixed. The engine was gone so long that the repair shop lost it. I never got to drive the go-kart. Overpromise, underdeliver. We've all experienced the sorrow of that, right? This sermon this morning is titled The First Promise of Christmas. And so let's get this straight from the get-go. God is not like us. He doesn't overpromise, underdeliver. He doesn't underpromise, over-deliver. And add to this, what he promises us in the gift of Christmas is no small thing. And so my hope for us this morning is that that this first promise of Christmas would captivate us. I don't know about you, but I, I need so much constant reminding this time of year that the true promise of Christmas, what it really is, so I don't get distracted by the lesser good things that can take place this Christmas season. Things we can set our hearts on, like the... I don't know about you, but just something about the nostalgic feeling of Christmas time, right? You know, the candle lights and putting up the tree and the smell of pine needles, or the promise of a pay raise, or bonuses, or shopping sprees, or kids returning home, or prolonged days of sleeping in, or newfound love, or tropical vacations. You get the point. None of these things are inherently bad, but they become harmful to our souls if by them we become less captivated by the promise of Christmas. In our passage, God promises Christmas. Christmas is this. It's about the promise of God coming down into our messy, broken, rebellious world so that we can be restored to God and enjoy peace in this world here and now and in the age to come, eternal joy and glory and happiness. And so the promise of Christmas must be what captivates us. It must not be captivated by lesser promises. Now for promises to truly capture our hearts, there's certain criteria that must be met. I've got three of them, you may have more. But one, it must satisfy a deep need. Two, it must come with certainty. And three, it must astonish us in a way that we grab hold of it, right? So those are the three criteria we'll look at this morning. So the first is this. The promise of Christmas must captivate us because it alone satisfies our deepest need. What if I were to say to you, guess what? I got you a present. I just got you a lifetime membership in the Kale of the Month Club. <laughs> now, some of you be like, that is so awesome. He knows me so well. Um, just what I needed, Right. Chances are, most of you are like kale of the month. All right, maybe beef jerky of the month, but not kale. All right. This illustrates a point that we must keep in mind. A promise will not captivate us unless it satisfies a deeply felt need, right? And the issue with us humans is that we tend to be blind to our deepest need. Let me repeat that. We tend to be blind to our deepest need. Some think their deepest need is for a man or woman to wrap our arms around. Surely then my needs will be met. But that is just a symptom of a deeper need, right? Some think that their deepest need is for their careers to go well so that in 10 to 15 years, their financial happiness will be locked in. But that is just a symptom of a much deeper need. I don't know what it is for you, but what are some of the symptoms that you have that point to a much deeper need? You know, if you went to a doctor and complaining of various symptoms, and she told you you have a life-threatening disease, would you be content with her only treating the symptoms? Or would you demand that she treat the disease that causes the symptoms, all the while treating the symptoms, too? So most of the world isn't asking the right questions. Instead of asking if there's some deeper need that demands treatment, People treat symptoms like loneliness or self-esteem or, or self-worth. In our passage, we see the disease that causes all the symptoms. For some of us, it might be hard to hear, but the world isn't right. And we humans are not right. <laughs> There's something wrong at the very core. Remember, the, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's not out there, it's in here. In the beginning, Adam and Eve had everything in perfection. Try to picture that. They had no symptoms that needed band-aids. You and know, I don't even know what that's like. They were made by God and they, and they lived for God with great joy and delight. Everything then was like we wish our lives could be now, without any want or sorrow or pain or suffering. But then something intruded. Understand this. Intruded into God's good creation. Evil and destruction and lies and disobedience entered in, and Adam and Eve were the port of entry. We see they were tempted by Satan, who took on the form of a serpent. Now, I I know the existence of Satan. It's, It's scoffed at by many today. I used to scoff at it myself. But Jesus spoke regularly of Satan. The word in the Hebrew literally means the adversary, like with a capital A. We don't know much about Satan other than that he was one time an angel in God's presence, a very high regard, I guess, and he rebelled against God and he took other angels with him. But we must know this, God has an evil adversary, one who hates God, one who promotes evil. And he lured Adam and Eve by telling them lies and that, that, that getting them to think that life would be better apart from a God calling the shots. Eve gave Adam the forbidden fruit, and in that instant in which he ate, all the brokenness that we experience now entered into the world. The promise of Christmas begins with the reality of a curse. Things aren't right. Not that this world is utterly bad, like there is no good things in this earth. We all know there's good things here. The problem is, because of the curse, all the good that you and I in this earth that we'll ever experience will eventually be gone. Either somehow it vanishes while we're alive, it goes through our fingers, it rusts, it decays, we no longer like it, it falls apart, it leaves us, abandons us. Everything will vanish, or it'll be stripped from us at our death. That's the curse we live under. But now, check out this wonderful reality that we see in our passage. After they rebelled, I don't know, about what would you have done if you were a guy? Probably not what we see here. After they rebel, God pursues Adam and Eve in love. He asks them questions, but he's not trying to gather the facts like a private investigator. He's God. He already knows what happened. What is God doing? He's drawing near to them, he's giving them a chance to cultivate a response of repentance. He comes asking questions so that they would say, Lord, we are so sorry. How stupid we were is there anything that you could do to fix this instead what did they do they blame shifted Adam said did you hear that that woman that you gave me she made me do it men have been doing this ever since right and Eve said that serpent he made me do it now listen If ever in your life you have ever shifted blame to someone else, it is proof that you too live under this curse. It's not someone else's problem. It belongs to you and to me. So when God came to Adam and Eve, he came asking questions that they may turn to him. But listen, when he comes to speak to the serpent, he asks no questions. He delivers a curse. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you. Legan Duncan, whom I'm indebted to this morning, says this about what happened. In verse 14, we see the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you. Now in the language of verses 14 through 19, the whole section, everything God says to the serpent and to Eve and to Adam is in the form of judgment. God is handing down judgment. Just judgment judgment on rebellion on sin on wickedness on evil and there are consequences for eve and there's consequences for adam but did you notice god does not say to eve cursed are you he does not say to adam cursed are you he does say to adam cursed is the ground because of you And Adam lived a long time. Can you imagine Adam living for the next nine centuries and everyone on the planet being able to point to him and saying, this is all your fault. And it is his fault. But God, even to Adam, doesn't say, cursed are you. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. But to the serpent, he says, cursed are you. So this is the disease that produces all of our symptoms, this deep down need beneath all others. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Listen, in the the midst of the curse, God is able to bring hope and blessing. By the end of the book of Genesis, as some of you probably know, in in chapter 50, Joseph is able to say to his cruel brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Good. You see, we worship a God who loves to bring blessing out of curse. He loves to turn curses into blessings. I'm afraid sometimes we Christians, we feel so cursed that we're unable even to see the blessings that are around us. And we feel as if God has left us. But no, He's able. our God is a God who's able to take the curses, that, the sorrow, the brokenness that we experience. And somehow, because we love Him, He turns it into good just need eyes to see that. Our closing hymn is one that we enjoy singing at Christmas. It's Joy to the World. In one of the stanzas, um, Isaac Watts writes, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. I'm not going to sing it, but far as, far as. The curse is found. So, my friends, the promise of Christmas must captivate us because it alone satisfies our deepest need. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Do you hope in that? Next, the promise of Christmas must captivate us because it comes with absolute certainty. I think you're going to enjoy hearing this or studying this. There are many reasons for us to have absolute certainty that everything that God promises us with Christmas will come to pass. But one thing that sticks out in this passage is this. God goes to war on our behalf so that the promise of Christmas may come to pass. Remember, God does not curse Adam and Eve. He says they will live in a cursed world that never fully satisfies. But he does not curse them. Also notice... God does not give Adam and Eve a martial plan. Look it up, young ones. So they can fix all that went wrong. God doesn't say, now that you've rebelled against me, even though I've been nothing but loving and caring to you, here are some things you need to do in order to work your way back into my favor. Do these things, then we can talk. No. God speaks to the serpent, and God says, I'm declaring War, verse 315. I will put enmity between you and the woman. When was the last time you used the word enmity? Try to put that in a sentence. Enmity means a condition of hostility, hatred, ill will, animosity, antagonism. The same root Latin word for for we get the word enemy. God is saying, Listen, you sought to take captive this woman who will be the mother of all children of the earth, but I will not let you have her. I will drive a wedge of battle between you and her. You are the enemy of her soul and the enemy of all who will ever live. Your designs are to harm her. Your designs for her and her offspring is to enslave them to evil. And my designs are to battle against you so that she and her offspring may experience my lordship and love." Isn't that amazing? In Greek mythology, Helen of Troy was married to King Menelaus of Sparta. She was abducted by Prince Paris of Troy. There was great enmity between the Spartans and the Trojans. King Menelaus declared war to free her from captivity. And so began the Trojan War, at least according to Greek mythology. Has anyone ever declared war on your behalf to free you from captivity? Yeah. That's what God is saying in Genesis 3.15. It's a promise not just for them, but for all of God's children today. He battles on your behalf. And so here's the beauty of what we see here. Adam and Eve were culpable. They were to blame. Yes, they were tempted. And they had every, but they had every reason to believe God and obey him. But they rebelled. But isn't it amazing about God? He does not go to war with Adam or Eve. He goes to war with the adversary. God begins our salvation with a God-inaugurated warfare on our behalf. And so it's for this reason and plenty of others too that we're to have absolute certainty in this promise of Christmas that God's gift of grace and restoration is ours. And so this must captivate us, right? How could it not? Our God has gone to battle on our behalf. So we've seen how the promise of Christmas satisfies, and that it is certain. Now let's see the astonishment. The promise of Christmas must captivate us because it is astonishing. Now most of us who were alive at the time remember a phrase from the early days of the war in Iraq. Remember the phrase, shock and awe. Commanding General Tommy Franks employed a strategy of shock and awe to begin this military campaign. In an instant, thousands of planes and hundreds of, of cruise missiles attacked Iraq with overwhelming show of force. The Iraqi troops, because of this shock and awe, surrendered by the tens of thousands. Soldiers and Marines were in Baghdad in days. Shock and awe. Amazingly, that is not how God entered the battle against Satan. God battles in two astonishing ways in verse 3, 315. First, God does not begin the battle by launching cruise missiles. And he gives the promise, a promise of a child, a baby. Yeah, kind of like that little one over there little baby of all the ways to threaten the greatest evil in the universe the promise of a baby to come in this curse of the serpent God says I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring now the word offspring here speaks of generations of descendants and it's true that Adam and Eve have generations of descendants Genetic research shows that all human beings can be traced back to a single pair of parents. But God says there are offspring that belong to the adversary and there are offspring that belong to God. We see it unfold in the very next chapter when Cain kills his brother Abel. Then Eve bears another son named Seth. At the very end of Genesis chapter 4 we read, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Listen, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we see in the first within the very first generation of their offspring, two lines of offspring, the offspring of Cain, the murderer, and the offspring of Seth, those who call upon the name of the Lord. And it's been this way to this very day. There's two lineages. But remember, I said the promise was for a baby. And here's where the grammar comes into play. The word offspring in the Hebrew is the word Zerah. It's in the singular, but that isn't abnormal when talking about offspring. Um, but then as we read on, there's an individual offspring. Look in continuing on in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises an individual who will be born, who will engage in battle. There is a he to come. In Genesis 3, we have no name for the he. But as God's big story unfolds, it becomes more fully clear who the he is. Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the New Testament, the theme is picked up in Matthew, chapter 1, verse 23. We will look at this on New, on Christmas Eve. We read, The angel said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Paul will say this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. A baby. promise of a baby. Doesn't sound very threatening, does it? Imagine how Satan and his fallen angels must have laughed at the thought of that, right? (laughs) A baby? Hashtag most ridiculous promise ever, right? But that is how God operates. His ways are not like our ways. When God takes on flesh that very first Christmas morning, He came in meekness and in weakness. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, God who dwells in unimaginable glory, surrounded by scores of joyous angels marveling at His glory. This very God became a vulnerable baby. And not born in a palace, born in a stinking barn in the backwoods of Bethlehem, a third-rate nation being dominated by the sons of Cain, the Roman Empire. Now, you see what's going on here? Satan thought that he would use the woman that God had created as a tool. He sought to abuse her, to misuse her, as his henchmen bring destruction on the whole human race. And God says, however... That's your plan, Satan? You're gonna bring sin into humanity through the this defection of a woman? Guess what? I'm gonna use a woman to bring a savior of the world who will crush your head. A baby. Which brings us to the second astonishing way in which God defeats Satan. First is by the birth of a baby, second is by a cross. What looks like defeat becomes victory. Kind of like the Ohio State-Wisconsin game last night. <laughs> Maybe you didn't catch it. It was, uh, it was late. It was late. All right. God says concerning the offspring, he, that's his son, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's going on here? How does this point us to the cross? Well, Duncan says that it's a picture of man versus serpent. How does man destroy a serpent? Perhaps by pinning it down with a fork staff and then crushing its head with a stone or maybe even the foot, right? You can picture that. And and how does a serpent, a poisonous serpent, kill a man? By striking at his heel. Now you might have expected Genesis 3.15 to stop with these words. And he shall bruise your head. So that God is just saying, you know what, Satan, I'm taking you out. I'm going to have victory over you. And of course it's true, the Lord is going to take him out. He is going to have victory over him. But it's so interesting and it's so poignant that God says this. He says, the one who comes into this world born of a woman, he will have victory over you, but he will have victory over you at the cost of his own life. You will strike his heel your venom will kill him. But in the killing of him, many will rise to new life. You see, our salvation begins with a promise of both death and victory. It's a costly victory. The only way to reverse what Adam and Eve have done is for this promised seed, the sun, to bear the devastation that they produced. And to bear the curse that they deserve and we deserve. At the very outset, God is saying, I'm going to send my son into the world and he's going to gain victory and he's going to do it by bearing a curse. My curse. Instead of cursing people made in my image, my own son will bear that curse. It's a poignant thing, my friends. That in this passage, God never says to Adam and Eve, I curse you. But God's own Son bears the curse of His Father on the cross in their place and in our place. And Jesus, when He's on the cross, He lifted up the voice to His Father. Remember that? He's hanging on the cross and He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And both the Father and the Son know exactly what the answer to that question is because of that first couple's sin and because of our sin. You know, many Jewish people today deny that Jesus is the Messiah. One of the reasons that their rabbis point to is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23, where God says that if a man is put to death by being hung on a tree, he is a cursed man. For cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And so the rabbis point out that, well, Jesus, he was crucified. He was hung on a tree. Therefore, he's not a blessing because he's been cursed by God. How can he be a savior or a messiah? But you see, the rabbis, they missed the point. Someone had to take the curse away. God won't let Adam and Eve hang on a tree as a curse. Someone must, though, and that someone is his own son. Jesus had to be a curse as the Messiah in order to be our substitute. Which is why Paul wrote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy. That is what is so astonishing about the promise of Christmas. God promised to win the victory over sin, death, and evil, and Satan through the birth of his son, who would grow up and die as a curse on the cross so that we can experience his blessing. To Adam and Eve who brought misery into this world, God says, Though you have turned from me, I have not turned from you. Though you have broken it, I will buy it and fix it. I alone can take this curse and turn it into blessing. And now to show them that all is going to be okay, what does God do? It's, it's, look at the last verse, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Don't let the significance of this escape you. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they began to feel something they never felt before, guilt and shame. What do we do when we feel guilt and shame? We like to cover it up, don't we? Where did we get that from? I don't know. Which is why they took leaves and they sewed them together to, f- to form loincloths to cover themselves in their nakedness. Please take to heart what God does for Adam and Eve. God looks down and he sees their feeble attempts to make clothes out of leaves to cover their guilt and shame. They use leaves of all things. What happens to leaves? You, you, you pluck them when they're green, but it's not very long. They dry and they shrivel up. They crackle. They fall away. They become brittle. Listen, Adam and Eve would have spent the rest of their lives covering and recovering their guilt and shame. But what does God do? God gives them a covering that lasts and its animal skins, and it means there must be a sacrifice of blood in order for my people to be clothed with righteousness. And so God kills an animal so that the guilt and shame of his children can be properly covered. In a moment, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. We're almost done. As we do, may we be reminded that God in Christ has covered us. He has taken our guilt and shame. He's placed it upon his son. He has borne the curse for us. He's taken our guilt and he's covered us with what the Bible says are robes of righteousness. Each one of you who trusts in Christ are covered with Christ's righteousness. We don't need to run around scurrying on this earth, hiding from people, not letting people see what's deep beneath us because we're clothed in righteousness. For once, we can be honest with people. Let them know how broken we really are instead of having to put on our own works to show the world we are covered in Christ's righteousness. Let us walk in that. And so as we approach this table, may we be thankful so that's the first promise of Christmas, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. It's a promise that addresses our deepest need. It gets to the disease, not just the symptoms. We live in a cursed world. Yes, there are a lot of good things that God allows us to enjoy. But this Advent season, may we not be distracted by gifts that simply address our symptoms, but let us meditate upon and delight in the greatest gift we could ever enjoy, God's gift to His Son. And may the promise of Christmas captivate us as well, because it comes to us with absolute certainty. God has entered the battle on our behalf. Only he can win, and he has won. The battle's in his hands. We must trust him with it. Christ will come again. We call it his second advent or second coming. For now, though, as his children, we are able to live in this broken world with hope knowing that God is a God who's able to turn curses into blessing. So let us live with astonishment. God has won the battle through a baby that was first promised way back in Genesis 3. May this promise of Christmas captivate us today and every day. Let's pray. It's true, Father, every time we open up Scripture, as your Spirit gives life to the words... We are amazed. All the details. All the things that you brought together. All the things that seem like random events that just somehow happened are really under your control. And you have given a promise way back to that first couple of a He who would come, who would win the victory at the cost of His life. How blessed we are today to be able to look back on that coming of Christ and look forward to His next coming. May we live in this tension as your people with great hope and faith and delight and joy, we pray. Amen.